Are you wandering in the wilderness? Or are you a voice in the wilderness? Welcome to the Revival Cry podcast. This is your host, Eric Miller. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The goal of this podcast is to encourage you to use the voice God has given you to make Jesus famous. Every week, we will share principles from the Word of God, interviews, and encouragement in order to strengthen your voice. Thank you for joining me today. And now here is today's podcast. Well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you're here with us today, this afternoon, and as we get into this teaching on repentance, we pray that you would be the teacher, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would establish truth in us, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it is and why we believe what we believe. Lord, that you would give us grace, Lord, to not only understand these things, but to teach them, to do them, to put them into practice. That we would not be hearers only, but doers. People who understand what we, what we know, but Lord, are able to articulate and help people come to conclusions of how to know you, to understand who you are and what they need to do to encounter and experience your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So this topic is repentance. As you can see behind me, the picture of someone walking down train tracks. And they are moving in the opposite direction from the camera. But repentance is, when somebody repents, do they turn 360 degrees or 180 degrees? Well, 360 means if they're going this way in the wrong direction, that they go all the way back around. So they turn 180. And they turn their back and go the opposite direction. And we're going to give a lot of definition on what is repentance. But repentance is to express sorrow and to seek change for wrong behavior, to receive the kingdom. So it's a double process. Not only do you turn your back on sin, the world, the flesh, but you're turning towards God. That's a part of repentance that oftentimes people forget. They know that they're turning their back on sin, but you have to be turning towards something better than what you're turning away from, right? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, metanoia. It means an afterthought, a change of mind, reversing the effects of a previous state of mind. Repentance was the foundation to Jesus' ministry. His message was always, repent and believe. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you cannot 
encounter and experience the kingdom of heaven, the power of God, without repentance. It's impossible. We have to understand the power that sin holds in our life, and the only way to break free from it is repentance. Again, it's not how many hours you go to church. It's not how many good deeds you do, how much service, how much money you give in the offering. It has nothing to do with if you outweigh the bad things with good things. It has everything to do of being convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And unless we repent, we cannot experience who he is, his love, and his kingdom. Hebrews 10.14 says, Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What's the difference between perfection and holiness? Really nothing, right? If somebody is absolutely holy, then they are perfect. And if you're perfect, you're holy. He has made perfect, that statement in the Greek is teleo. It means to make perfect, to be finished, fulfill, be perfect, consecrate. Being made holy in the Greek is hagiadzo. It means to sanctify, to hollow, to be holy. This meaning is trying to help us to understand that in Christ, when you are repentant for your sin and you accept him into your life to be your Lord and Savior, you are perfected. In Christ, right? Jesus makes us perfect. And so everything we've done before, the Father will not judge us by our past because God has forgiven our sin as far as the east is from the west and he remembers it no more. You are a new creation. In Christ, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That is in exactly what happens when you are born again. But how many of you, after you've been born again, have sinned? Nobody? Just three or four people? Okay. Everybody has. Right? Everybody has. So if I'm perfected in Christ when I'm born again, then why am I not living perfect? So we're going to, in a moment, talk about the three parts that make us up again. Body, soul, and spirit. When you are perfected in Christ, your soul, right? We talked about this the other day. Is your mind, your emotions, and your will. That needs to be renewed. That needs to be sanctified. When you're born again, you are justified, right? Some people say, just as if you never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. But then, 
Your soul needs to be renewed, sanctified. So the attitudes, actions, words, thoughts that you have before you are born again, they may still be there after you're born again. And now you need to submit those things to God so that you can live holy. Jesus is perfect inside of you. But he's helping you to be sanctified so you can learn how to live a holy lifestyle, right? So Jesus is perfect and gives you the power over sin. So the war between your flesh and the spirit of God living in you, you feed the Lord and not feed your sin, you will overcome. But if you feed sin, you're in danger of leaving behind what the Lord has paid a price for you. But just because the Lord paid a price for you and you received him, doesn't mean once saved, always saved. Can I just say this plainly? That is a doctrine of demons. Now I'm not saying that as a Christian, we cannot be secure in our salvation. I don't worry about if I'm losing my salvation because I live for Jesus. But if I live in sin and Jesus has paid away for me, but I'm choosing to not live for him in sins of commission or sins of omission, right? Yes. I have a daily choice on whether I'm going to obey God or not. And if I'm feeding my spirit man that is born again, then he is going to overcome my flesh and the world. But if I don't feed that, I'm in danger of feeding my flesh and, the, and listening to the world and giving in to sin that is destructive and wants to make me a slave again. Right? Is this making sense? So God said, I will never leave you or forsake you, but we can walk away from him. We still have that choice. Just because you're born again does not mean that God is going to do everything for you. Why would Jesus say, if any man or woman would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. You have to deny your flesh in order to follow Jesus. Maybe when you heard about coming to this school, to do your DTS, you thought, oh, that's a lot of money. I don't know if I can afford it. But you prayed and you felt God say go. And so if what would happen if you did not obey what God asked you to? Now, it wouldn't be a sin of commission because you're not sinning and willfully doing something evil but you're allowing confusion to set in and not take God at his word. And if you don't take a step of faith and follow the Lord to do what he's leading you to do, it could become a sin of omission to where God's leading you to do something, but you're not doing it because you're listening to your flesh and not your spirit. Are you with me? See, it's not... We either live in guilt and condemnation or we live according to conviction. 
The Holy Spirit convicts. The Word of God convicts. Demons, the devil, the world condemns, shames, <coughs> says you should feel guilty. But if you take a step of faith, if God can raise the dead, he can pay for your YWAM DTS. Amen. Amen. How are you going to believe to help the poor, the needy, the broken ones, if you can't believe for something like that? Now, I'm not devaluing or comparing what you have to believe for compared to what I have to believe for or what somebody else has to believe for. The fact is, you are where you are and God knows where you are. And if you obey him and do what he's asking you to do, he will always bless us for taking steps of faith. Amen? So you are in a process called sanctification. And in this process is the greatest school of ministry that you will ever be in, and you will be in until Jesus comes or you die to go be with him. <laughs> That's why I love people who are teachable. Because we understand that we've made a decision that Jesus is Lord, and because he is Lord and he's God, he's in control, and I need to submit my will to him. And if I do that, he promises to take care of us. Amen? Amen. So we're talking about rendering or acknowledging or being venerable or hollow. This is what it means to be separated, to sanctify, to separate from profane things and be dedicated to God, to consecrate things to God, dedicate people to God, to purify, to cleanse externally, purify by expiation, free from the guilt of sin, to purify internally by renewing of the soul. This is what God is doing in you, and you don't even realize what he's doing. Do any of you have a medical background? Any? You do? Okay, okay, so this is my point, is that it takes, let's say, eight to ten years to become a doctor, right? And then if you want to become a surgeon in some specific type of surgery, brain surgery, heart surgery, something else, you might have more years of school. So just because somebody graduates and practices general medicine, do you want them to do brain surgery on you? No, because they have not gone through that process. And so God will not give you every desire that he has put in your heart until the process of sanctification continues in your life and he sees that you have graduated to a point where he can trust you to do things that you didn't know that you can do in Christ. Those little actions of obedience are the process of learning if you will remain teachable and willing to walk by faith no matter what goes on, denying yourself, I trust you, God, at your word. He always proves faithful. And then you find yourself being qualified to do things that you've always dreamed about doing. Amen? Let's go on. Therefore, when we are perfected in Christ, our spirit came to life because of Christ dwelling in us. When we are being made holy in Christ, our soul, which is our mind, emotions, and will, is being prepared for submission to our spirit, the spirit of Jesus, right, which is submitted to God, the Father, Holy Spirit. 
So you see the chart there, right? Now, some people describe this differently. They think there's not much of a difference between the soul and the spirit. But I like the description of body, soul, and spirit because personally, I think it helps me to understand what God is doing in my life. So if I understand, like I said yesterday, if you got born again when you're 20 years old, right? And for 20 years, you lived according to a sinful lifestyle under the enslavement of sin, and your sanctification is taking place, you're not ready to pastor the church yet or to take up leadership responsibilities because God is trying to equip you so that your soul, which is basically crawling at that point, right? You need people to change your diaper, pretty much. You're dependent on other people. That as you're growing and you're mature and you start feeding yourself, you learn how to hear God's voice, you memorize his word, you walk in obedience, you have testimonies, and days, weeks, months, and years go by, greater confidence is built in your heart to where you're not falling into sin like you used to, right? You are now experiencing a greater breakthrough in your life because you know that greater is he who's in you than he that's in the world. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself, what does it say? Sanctify you completely. That's God's goal. He loves you so much, he's not finished with you. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? So what coming is he talking about? The second coming of Jesus. So whether you and I get to see the second coming of Jesus or not, or we go be with him beforehand, the fact of the matter is that God's goal is to sanctify us so that we're ready to meet him. It's what the scripture tells us, that the church is like a bride preparing herself for the bridegroom. And you don't want a bride who's dressed like a prostitute, right? You want a bride who's preparing herself and making herself ready. Body, soul, spirit, purity, holiness. You are mine and I am yours. Your banner over me is love, right? I want you, Jesus. Again, so if you're single, man, fight for your purity and your integrity and the holiness and the sanctification that's taking place. I know there's so many opportunities for temptation. But listen, don't you ever love anybody else more than Jesus. And then when you fall in love, and you find the right person that you're supposed to be in covenant with, you can look them at the altar and say, I have given my life to Jesus, and because of that, I've waited for you. See, that's powerful. See, I did it wrong. I was not living holy when my wife and I met, even though I was a youth pastor. I told you about the sin I was struggling with. And because of that, I had to repent to my wife. She had to repent. 
for things that she wasn't living before God righteously. And do you know when we entered into our marriage covenant, it probably took 10 years for us to mature individually and as a married couple before we were not screaming and yelling at each other all the time. And we begin to honor one another above ourselves. We begin to forgive and not be mad about each other's personality or quirks that we have, right? And then our love became based on God's word and truth. So when you give into a relationship like that, for as long as we have, again, January would be 27 years, I don't want to do that again with anybody else. Because it's hard work. And when you give yourself to somebody like that, then you have a value and a trust that you don't have with anybody else in the world. The only other person you should have that with in a greater way is Jesus. So think about that. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read this whole chapter. Starting in verse 1. Now, let me, let me say this. The beginning of John the Baptist, who we're going to read about, who's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. At the end of the book of Malachi, right? Up until the birth of Jesus, the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner, preparing the way for the Messiah. There is a period of 400 years where there is no prophetic voice speaking. It is the in-between of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So think about this. If you were a, a prophet, what would you want to do? You maybe want to get on YouTube. Maybe you want to get on the radio. Maybe you want to build a big church in an area that everybody can see and come to, have beautiful lights at night so people can come and hear what you have to say. Is that what John the Baptist did? <laughs> in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness. Preaching in the wilderness, the desert. Has anybody ever been to Israel? No? Who wants to go? <laughs> a lot of hands went up very quickly. I've been there. I went there in 2016, my wife. We prayed for 20 years to go, and the Lord opened the doors. And when we went, one of the days we were there, we spent the night with a tribal people called the Bedouins. And they've been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe more than that. And they're a nomadic people, so they just move from place to place. They have camels, everything. They set up tents and everything. Well, they had a big tent for tour groups, which is not the tent that the Bedouins stay with. Our tent was huge. It was as big as this whole building area. And it had a buffet and then nice cots on the floor, right? Yeah. And it was fun. We only did it one night, you know. Next night, we went to like a five-star hotel, so... I mean, that's Israel. So if you go there, you're probably not going to stay in anything less than a four-star hotel just because tourism is the number one um, financial 
provision for Israel, most likely. It could be different now with technology and agriculture, but anyway. So we spent the night, and I woke up in the morning very early, about 5, and I walked outside. The sun was just coming up, and I walked out from the tent in the desert. There was nothing around. And I was sparked to read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me, right? And so I'm reading this, just weeping. Like this is, I don't know if this is the place that David penned this psalm, but it was the same idea. And I realize that God can speak to us and through us in desert times. In fact, desert seasons... When everything, the lights, the glamour, the city, the noise, the phones, and everything is taken away, is when you can really be still and know that he's God. Mm. So think about this. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. He sets up his ministry in the wilderness. He doesn't go into Jerusalem. He doesn't go into the big city. He's in the desert preaching to lizards and rocks. Cactus. (laughs) And saying, repent. He's not preaching. Come on, listen to the message I have. And if you receive it, you'll prosper. And God will bless you in every way, shape, and form. He's not preaching a message that's going to draw people and say, Oh, I want to hear what this guy says. He's so good looking. He probably smells nice. He's probably dressed really nice, right? No, he's preaching repentance. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's an announcer. He's a proclaimer. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to tell you, if you're willing to go and preach where God's asking you to preach, then God will back you up with people who will say he's the real deal. See, now they're saying, wait a minute. He's the guy that Isaiah talked about. Isaiah was a pretty big deal. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair. Mm. And he had a leather belt. It probably doesn't look like my nice belt here that's about that thick and it good size and everything is probably pretty rough looking (laughs) around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Mm. Yeah. You guys hungry? We can take a snack break. People listen to this. He ate weird. He smelled weird. He dressed weird. He lived in the wilderness and he preached a repentance message. Look, people went out to him from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. You know why? Because there is a famine of the word of God. People are hungry now. People are thirsty for God. 
see, sometimes we go through desert seasons, we think God's left us. No, God's trying to teach you to listen to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John was not a Levite. Who is he to tell us how to live? But he had a voice that nobody could ignore. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! The religious leaders came by. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now this, I told you I was going to tell you my favorite scripture verse. Matthew 3, verse 8. I want you to memorize it. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you could say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Sounds like a man of faith. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We're talking about repentance. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me <laughs> comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you, not just with water, but the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, you know what a winnowing fork is? It's a big fork that separates the wheat from the chaff, right? And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, you think that my message is tough. Just wait until you hear the guy who's coming after me. His message is not tough, but you're going to have a hard time resisting it. And you're going to be willing to lay everything down because the way that he speaks is not just agreeable to you, but you will be absolutely convicted. His voice is unlike any voice the world has ever heard since the dawn of creation. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. He just shows up one day. He's water baptizing people and he sees somebody walking in the distance. He can't take his eyes off. He's thinking, I know that guy. Do you know they were cousins? Yes. So there was some familiarity, but he may not have seen Jesus for a long time. But this isn't Jesus the boy anymore the teenager. This is Jesus the man. And he says he needs to be baptized by John. John knows about Jesus' life. Born of a virgin. Sinless. But John tried to deter him saying, well, I don't know if you just heard what I told the others about what you'll do for them when you baptize them. 
but uh, I need to be baptized to you and you're coming to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this thing, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Okay, you're never wrong. You've always been right. I'll do what you ask. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm a man of faith, and the word of God is burning in my heart, so I'm going to do it. As soon as Jesus was baptized, and he came out of the water, at that moment, the heavens were opened. What a baptism. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting upon him. And then a voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my son whom I love and who I'm well pleased. In other versions it says, Listen to him. Key verses. Produce fruit while keeping with repentance. Key verse. When I was at the Brownsville Revival, how many of you know nothing about the Brownsville Revival? Pensacola Revival. You don't know anything about it. Okay, a lot of you. So let me share this. In 1995, in Father's Day, which is June of 1995, a church in Pensacola, Florida, you know what Florida looks like? It kind of looks like this. Well, Orlando, Mickey Mouse is down here. Miami's here. And seven-hour drive north is Pensacola. Pensacola is not the place that most people go to when they go to Florida. Okay? It's a nice city. It's beautiful beaches. But it's warmer down south. So when people go to Pensacola, they go for different reasons, but not like everybody who goes south for tourism. A church called the Brownsville Assembly of God, a little town in Pensacola called Brownsville, was praying for revival for over two and a half years, that God would move in their city. And then on Father's Day of 1995, God poured out his spirit. A man named Steve Hill was preaching. He was an evangelist, a missionary from Argentina. He'd been a part of a great revival in Argentina, saw tens of thousands of people come to Jesus. He was preaching on that Sunday. And, you know, most Father's Day services, you don't invite an evangelist. You have a quick service so everybody can go home and have dinner with their papas, right? <laughs> and, and that's or lunch with their fathers. And, and that's it. Well, this Sunday they invited Steve because that was the only day he had. And Steve had had these real genuine encounters with God, something that really shook and changed his life beyond his born-again experience. Steve was an alcoholic. He was a drug addict. He was in jail, and he got radically saved and set free and became a missionary. And so he preached that Sunday, and as he preached and started to pray for people during the altar call, it turned into hour after hour after hour. They stayed there for several hours. Nobody wanted to leave. The power of God came. Now, Brownsville was already a good-sized church. It was about 1,000 people. And so everybody was being touched by God. Well, nobody wanted to leave. And then the pastor, John Kilpatrick, fell out in the spirit, and nobody could get him up. They had to pick him up 
put him in the car and take him home. His wife had to undress him and dress him for bed so that he can go to sleep. I mean, he was already out. He never got up until the next morning. And the people said, well, what do we do? And they said, well, let's come back tomorrow. They came back Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, week after month after year for five years straight. There was a revival that took place. In that time period, four and a half million people came to the doors of that church. Sometimes there'd be over a hundred nations represented in one service. This is not Chicago, New York, or LA. This is Pensacola. It's not a very big town. It's maybe the size of Cagayan. And so many people came from around. There was no social media at that time. It was word of mouth. It was VHS tapes. Do you know what they are? <laughs> Big tapes that people passed around. We saw one in my church in Delaware, and I wasn't living right for God. And they paid, played a, 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 an excerpt from it, and I began weeping. I, I didn't know what was going on. I felt the presence of God like, what is this? So the revival was going on for three years before Casey and I went. We did not go until April of 1998. And I had just gotten right with God several months before. And the Lord made it clear for us that we were to go. Casey was seven months pregnant. We didn't know if we should go because it was, you got to go wait in line to go into the church. Now, let me say, every day a line would form in front of the church. Okay, by 6 a.m., there were already people in line. The doors didn't open till the church till 6 p.m. And by 9 a.m., when we were there for the first time, there was already 1,500 people in line. And by 6 p.m., the line was absolutely full. And there, they would fill the church, which sat 2,500 people. And not only would it fill the church, but they had to set up a huge tent in the parking lot with a TV screen for more people. They filled up the cafeteria, which was twice the size of this room. They would put TVs in the hallway with chairs on either side so people could walk through. There were people everywhere in the building and on the property. There was cars parked everywhere. And the pastor would say, who's from other states outside of Florida? All kinds of hands would go up. Arkansas, you know, Oregon, New York, all over the states. Who's from other countries? Sometimes a hundred nations would be represented. God was moving. And when God moves and people are hungry, it's like an explosion takes place that we call revival. So we went in April of 98. We had just gotten right with God. And while we were standing in line, I'm thinking, is this a good decision? The Lord made a way for us to get in. I chose not to get to the church until 9 a.m. because I didn't want my wife to wait all day, even though we were going to have to wait from 9 to 6 p.m. But it was hot. The sun, there was no shade. She's pregnant. So we get there, and I'm thinking, oh, no, I, I think I made a bad decision. And I'm praying, Lord, I got to get in that building. We didn't come all this way for nothing. 
And I'm standing there and a guy walks up to me, two guys from the front of the line. And I said, hey, are you guys here for the first time? We said, yeah. And, and his name was Dale, Dale Garrett. And he says, oh, it's so exciting. We want to ask you a question. We said, sure. Can we exchange places with you in the line? I said, but you're in the front of the line. Why would you want to exchange places with us? Well, for a few reasons. One is we're here all the time and we're waiting for people who haven't showed up yet and they're not here and they can't get where we are. So if we change with you, we'll get here and we'll find them and then we'll get in later. But we have a chair and we have an umbrella. We have water and we have snacks. We see your wife is pregnant. So we want you guys to come and sit down and relax. I'm like, are you people for real? So we go over there. And then there is a police officer at the front, security guard. He has a megaphone. And when the doors are about to open at 6 p.m., he gives instruction. And there's two lines. And he'll say, single file line, folks. No drank umbrella, cooler backpack, or large bags will be allowed in the sanctuary. Make sure when you get in, you hold your seat. Make sure you hold your seat. Do not get up unless you've been told you may lose your seat. And he'd repeat the same thing over and over and over. So we go in, and as we cross through the door of that church, I felt like I was walking under a waterfall of the presence of God. Unlike anything I've ever felt in my life. People were running inside to find a seat. And when, I, when we got our seat, we sat down, and I saw how excited people were. This was not a conference. This was not a concert. It wasn't about a celebrity. It was about the presence of God moving. People were getting saved. Drug addicts were coming in and immediately being set free. People were getting healed. Demons were coming out of people. I had never seen anything like this. And so we get there, and I hear the Lord speak to me, and he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Well, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16. And Paul tells Timothy this. So I look it up while I'm standing there, and he says basically something like, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them, um, submit your life and your doctrine, you know, persevere, grow up in the Lord, basically, is what he's saying. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And then the Lord spoke to me and said, there's a Bible school here, and I want you to go to it. I said, I can't leave. We have an apartment in Delaware. It's two-hour flight from here. Are you saying that we have to move here? We don't have any money. And the Lord challenged us. Do you know it was four months later that we have a van and we're moving to Pensacola, Florida? We have no idea what's next. I'm a, I just got right with God. I didn't even know God would want me in the ministry again because of my failures. But you know what the Lord did is he broke up my old foundation and laid a new one. And you know the message that I heard every single night was a repentance message. And in that repentance message, I wanted to understand why he didn't talk about other things. And then I read Matthew 3.8. Produce fruit while keeping with repentance. So what you're telling me, Lord, 
is that if I would be responsible to respond when you're calling me to repent, and listen, I was at meetings every night. You never wanted to miss any meeting because when the altar call was given, you would see three, 400 people run to the front to get right with God. I'm not talking about just getting up casually. I'm talking about running, diving on the floor, weeping and broken. Sometimes you would see people that were so broken and messed up getting right with God. One time I heard of a couple that got divorced a year before this meeting, this one night that they came to the revival. They lived in two different states, so very far from each other. They didn't talk to each other. Well, they both showed up at the revival the same night. And when the altar call was given and they both responded and they were kneeling and they get up and they look at each other and they're sitting next to each other. They get remarried and God heals their marriage and life. Other times there were Playboy models, okay? Playboy pornography models who came to Pensacola Beach to do a shootout, okay? They came and... They were doing this shootout and done, and they went back to the hotel, got changed, and wanted to go in a taxi cab and go, you know, drink somewhere, go party somewhere. So they get into the cab and then ask the taxi driver, um, hey, what's going on in Pensacola? Is there anything like really cool that we could go do and party tonight? He goes, the taxi driver says, you really want to know? He says, there's a church that people come to from all over the world. He said, every hotel in our city is filled with people who come to that church. So they looked at each other and said, okay. So they go, they listen to the message, they run forward, they get right with God. They repent and leave their life of sin. I can tell you about so many stories. One time there were two police officers that heard about somebody breaking into somebody's house. And so they go to inspect and they catch the thief and they put him in the car. And instead of going to jail, guess where they take him? They go to the church. He is handcuffed between the two officers in the pew. And during the altar call, they unlock him. He runs forward and he gets right with God and he repents. The crime rate in Pensacola City went down during the revival. I'm talking about, guys, something that God did is so powerful. And I talk about revival probably more than I talk about anything else. Because my life was so radically changed. My marriage was changed. Everything was changed. We've learned how to walk with God and learn how to listen to his voice and see him work on our behalf and call us to the nations. Not because anybody's forcing us to come to the Philippines, but now we're absolutely in love with Jesus and we'll go anywhere and do anything for him. This is why I talk about repentance. Acts 26, 20. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Repentance is the key foundation to all church growth and maturity. As repentance is practiced by the church, it, is, it will always usher in a fresh move of God. It will always usher in a revival. Now, it doesn't mean every revival is going to be huge. But revival is a personal issue. You are responsible to allow God to bring personal revival to your heart. 
If the church chooses to walk in personal revival, then we can have corporate revival. And when there's corporate revival, then those who are living in darkness, sinners, will see a great light. And we call what happens to them not revival, but awakening. Revival is for the church. Revival is not for the lost. Because revival means you revive something that was once alive but died and needs to be revived. Right? Those who are living in darkness have never been alive. They've never been born again. So when the church gets right with God individually and corporately, we shine the light to the world to say that Jesus is alive. And then those living in darkness can say, I want what you have. But here's the problem why the world doesn't want what we have. We're not living in repentance lifestyle to produce fruit because of, re- of, re- of our personal repentance. And therefore, we're not being the church that Jesus gave his life for. We are trying to create a church that doesn't exist. And there's so much idolatry in the church because people don't want to take personal responsibility for sin. I was talking to our brother earlier, and he said, you know, what you're talking about, sin, repentance, and all these things, we never hear these things talked about a lot of times in churches, right? I'm sure you hear it here because I know these guys, but not everybody talks about these things. You know why? Because it's unpopular. John the Baptist ministry was a repentance-based ministry. Okay, listen, let's take a break, and then we'll come right back. Thank you for listening to Revival Cry with Eric Miller. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review for this podcast on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more or partner with our missions work around the world, please visit us at revivalcry.org. I look forward to being with you next week.